everyone and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube. You can like and comment on our YouTube videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. Leave us a rate and review. Visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. So this week we are talking about After Sun 2022. 20 years after their last holiday at a fading vacation resort, Sophie reflects on the rare time spent with her loving and idealistic father, Callum. At 11 years old, as the world of adolescence creeps into Sophie's view, Callum struggles under the weight of life outside of fatherhood. Sophie's recollections become a powerful and heart-rendering portrait of their relationship as she tries to reconcile the father she knew with the man she didn't. This movie is starring Paul Mescal, Frankie Corio, and Celia Rolson Hall, and it's directed by Charlotte Wells. So, Dale, tell me your thoughts on this movie. Um, I like I like this this modern trend of Hollywood and their like I want to say modern like um this current trend of portraying fathers more so in their relationship with their kids outside of the usual like action movie kind of vibe not as like robust as like john q or you know taken but more of those more down-to-earth moments kind of like um so I, like i think um well barry Jenkins spoke about it because he's also he was also i think one of the producers of this movie he spoke mm-hmm. about it at, at Telroot, where he's like you don't honestly get portrayals like you don't see like brad pitt or like george Clooney or like those are the big box office guys have ever portrayed fathers in their career and he's like he likes this new trend and i think we all do of you know all all paul's upcoming actor but he is portraying a father even though he's like 26 years old and i I think that's come about because i think as more writers and directors become younger it's kind of like what black panther 2 did as we're using using a lot more of our personal experiences in our stories and using all those experiences like looking back at our child and how we view ourselves as adults now to reconcile a lot of things we didn't understand correctly as children. Mm. Yeah. yeah, this movie really caught me off guard. Like, for the first hour, I was like, this is pretty slow. Nothing's really happening. Like, I like how it's being shot, and I like the father and daughter portrayal, but, like, nothing's really happening. And then literally, maybe, like, an hour and... 10 minutes in I started crying and I was like oh okay I think I understand why everyone's talking about this movie now like this is a very emotionally like it like hits you out of nowhere because hi I'm Cindy if you didn't know I have daddy issues so um this was very like punched in the stomach kind of feeling while I was watching it because I think that what Charlotte did really well is she didn't really explain a lot about what was Callum was going through. Like you really see like little glimpses of things like, okay, maybe things aren't quite okay. And it was only until I finished the movie and started looking at some of the reviews, I understood what really was going on with him. And I think that was really smart because it's all through an 11 year old's point of view. So like you're at 11, you're not fully understanding everything that's happening either, but you're just getting like little glimpses of stuff. And so that's, she puts the audience in that same kind of headspace, which is really smart, I thought. But 
it, so it kind of creeps up on you. Like you're just thinking that you're watching this father and daughter have this vacation and then realizing like, this is the last time Frankie is going to see or Sophie in the movie is going to see her father. Like this was yeah. their last time together. And when you have that realization, it's like, Oh, it just, it hurts. Like it hurts so much. And then an almost like kind of idealized look at her father now that she's like his age, which is kind of the flash forward that you see in the movie. Um, and just realizing that at certain point, and we talked about it a lot because as you've been saying, a lot of movies recently have been talking about relationships between parents and children um, and kind of children's recollection of their parents. And there is that point in everyone's life where you realize like, oh, my parent was a person like, they're not just my parent. They had a whole life before me and reconciling that. So yeah, it's very emotional in a way I did not expect it to be. Cause I was ever in the film space online and stuff. Everyone was talking about this movie and it came out at Cannes and you know, it was, I've been hearing like some of my favorite creators talking about how this is like their favorite movie of the year. And I, ne- and I didn't understand why, cause I didn't hear much about it. And then I watched it and was like, Okay, I get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The tears. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I, I do. And the thing is, if you're not aware of that, you might get drawn out by the simplicity of the movie. There's nothing. It's really dialogue and emotion and, and, and um, yeah, dialogue heavy and it mostly interacts just between those two characters. And it doesn't really deviate between anybody else. There's no really branch or path. The whole movie of, of its core is, you know, her remembering that experience and I, I also do like the use of also you know how nowadays like it's weird because she's also they're also not just her memory but she also has a videotape mm-hmm. as well that's playing and I think that's a that's a really interesting thing because I know I've like 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 you said daddy issues I have, I have parent issues I have everybody has issues but like I remember for me like the idea of her having those videotapes and like in my head it wasn't just them playing back in the flashbacks in my head to me I was, it was in my head I knew that she's also watching these videos as well and like for for me that was like a tough thing for me because like being in this industry having all this audio equipment like when my like I'd go to family events and like I'd sit there and talk with my grandma me and my grandma are like best friends and then when she died like a major part of my grief was i have all this technology like i i shoot videos i do all this stuff and it never once said to me like i should record these mm. moments with my grandma my grandmother so that was so i was i i really felt those scenes because she even though her she has the memories and she also has, still has a physical media in case you know memory starts feeling like as you get older you do like forget like how people look and so you and so you might talk to somebody like yeah they had this this they might say no but she still has that you know not just to marry but also the the, the physical bond and it and like i think this movie also builds upon because this is charlotte's first like major film she's doing like three short films at N- nyu or something like, like this like builds upon her last project tuesday which is kind of like the same process of a young girl dealing with the doing the issue of loss and it's, mm. and it's kind of weird like i keep saying again like post pandemic like a lot of these projects have been people like dealing with loss you know across the board and i think like like i support that's like therapeutic i don't think or in this day and age, like we like our generation, we talk about mental health and all that stuff, but we still 
do like the base level stuff. We never go deep down into what's like bothering us. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my um, one of the things I realized while I was watching some of the interviews that um, Charlotte was doing was she was saying like I was looking back at the footage that I had of my dad and I didn't. It was kind of shocking how like young he was. Like and yeah, it's like. You have, I know when I look through family, like old family albums and stuff, and you realize like, I don't know, I guess the life that your parents had before you, but also the, that age of innocence where you don't kind of understand that there's a lot, like life is a lot more complicated and everyone's kind of going through their own stuff at that age and everything looks very, um, I don't know, different. Like it yeah. looks, one of the things that I found in the film was this understanding of time. Like the way Sophie is, is like, she's really just at the beginning of her life, you know, just being 11 and Colin feels like he's like at the end of his life. Yeah. And there's like an envy. There's a conversation that they have in the hotel room where he's like talking to her about like, you know, everything's ahead of you and all this other stuff. And it's almost like, he's wishing that he can kind of go back to that and have that youth again and maybe do things differently because the beginning of the movie starts with her asking him, like, when you were my age, like, what did you want to do? And he can't answer it. Like he can't answer the question because he isn't where he wants to be in his life at this age. And you think of 31 and it's like, it's really not, it's, you're still pretty young. Like you still have a lot (laughs) to accomplish, but I think because of the mental health issues that he's having, he can't really see kind of progressing beyond this point. Yeah. And so there's like an envy of like the youth that she has, where she has her whole life ahead of her to like make mistakes and do things differently. And I, it's also her looking at like the older kids. Like I like the interactions between her and the teenagers where it's like, she just wants to be older. Like she wants to be able to like do that. And I remember yeah. feeling the exact same way when I was 11, like literally being like, I can't wait till I'm 16, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then you become an adult and you're like, I, I was wrong. <laughs> I wasted yeah. my youth wanting to be older. Like it's ridiculous. And like he even says himself, like when they, they see another family at the pool with a young child, he goes, Oh, go, there's another kid to go play with him. And she goes, she scoffs and goes, Ooh, that's a kid. Mm-hmm. Like like that thing of uh, youthfulness and wanting to be wanting to be younger. And it's not just that. It's also the idea of him. Like when she at, says sings happy birthday, she's like, "Oh, you're 130 years old." Like it as a kid, you think your parents are so much older. And then I look back now, and I realize, I realize, yo, my parents have basically looked the same since I was like 12. Like they've like yeah, like, par- <laughs> like parents like freeze like a long time. But then as you get older, like now, I do see my parents, I see, I notice like the salt and pepper hair, like I, I notice the gray mm-hmm. hair, like, like, I was like, I was like messing, like, like, I'm like, I'm short and stocky and my dad is short and stocky, but I'm a little bit taller than him. So I was like walking behind him one day. I was like, hey, man, you turn into me. He was like, what do you mean? He's like, I see a ball spot in the back of your head. And he was like, no, 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 no. Like you see, like, it's like, you, mm. as, like once you like hit your like your late 20s and 30s, like you see the changes of your parents actually becoming older like that mystique of they're stuck in this weird holding pattern i was like gone you, you begin to see all the flaws and stuff and i mm-hmm. and I thought that was interesting because also with him she's viewing him as like a hundred years old like you're this old man where for him he's like he's also wrestling like my i'm just 30 like mm-hmm. there's like so much 
I have I haven't done and there's so much I want to do and there's that that intrepidation and that fear like as like I think as a father like now and I do think that's probably why sometimes like a lot of marital issues happen is like you sometimes view as like your kids as like baggage like like mm. like talking with my parents my dad my dad was like yeah when I was your age I had you and your sisters I was like I, I couldn't imagine like being like thirty, like thirty three years old, like, having, <laughs> having three kids and like having a responsibility. But you look at it like our parents, like you think of our like we're, you think right now we're in the prime, like we're still in our youth, and but our parents like have like so much responsibility and stuff compared to us. And mm-hmm. I also think that's another generational thing we're dealing with now, like as like the the millennium, like the, the like the two thousands, like we we also don't have the same opportunities our parents did, and I we view a lot of times that our parents did so much more at our ages. So this movie's like wrestling like with a lot of generational things. Like I think that's also how I I vibe with Sophie, and like adult Sophie. She's not only dealing with the passing of her father, but she's also like now having those memories. She's like, oh, I'm at the same place he was and there's like some kind of equilibrium some kind of like understanding and get to in a way yeah totally it's like okay i I get it like i get it now i get what you were going through and i think that's just a pattern of parenthood of where you're just you don't want to let on to your kids that you are struggling or dealing with stuff and that and that appears a lot in the movie where it's like he Callum like really tries to hide the fact that like he's struggling from her. But I think, you know, kids are kids are smart. Like you can't they're going to pick up on vibes even if they can't pick up on like explicit things. Like yeah. they're always going to feel stuff. And the pretense of like trying to pretend like you're not dealing with it because, you know, you want to appear like the pillar of strength for your children um isn't always helpful. No. And I and and I think maybe at 11, she might not be able to explicitly say that. But I know when I would have conversations with my cousins and stuff, and we would talk about like our parents and kind of feeling like we couldn't really come to them with stuff or, you know, in those veins, because it's like, well, they're not going to understand because they seem like they have everything together. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's, that's what they're portraying. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's not really helpful. It's like, we want to know that you're human that helps us kind of get through what we're going through. But I also think it's like a generational thing. It's like, no, we're not going <laughs> to show anything. I think this is set in like the nineties or something. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, it's still that vibe of like, no, I'm your parent. And I have to like keep things together, even though he's so young. Like that was one of the things that kind of caught me off guard. I was like, you're a parent, you're my age. Like, yeah. but in the context of the story, he's a little bit older than me. So whatever. But <laughs> Well, the yeah, act, the act, well, Paul in real life is, what, 20, is 26, but in yeah, the movie, like, he's, he's like 30 in the movie. So, but yeah. Speaking of Paul, wow. Yeah. That performance, incredible. Like, yeah. I didn't watch Normal People. The only thing I saw him in was The Lost Daughter. And he, yeah. was really, he wasn't only in there for like, he wasn't like a main character in that. But he, he did this because I was watching another video about good, great performances great performances where it's like you can yell your way through a movie or you can have restraint and mm-hmm. the restraint is actually tends to be a little bit more effective in terms of like actually feeling something 
And I think this movie was all about restraint for him, like him trying to keep things together. And you only get like little glimpses of like what's going on underneath the surface. Like when he spits at the mirror um, before he goes to dinner or like when he's like cutting the cast off of his arm and he's bleeding and his daughter's on the other side. And he's just like pretending like nothing's going, nothing's going on. Like he isn't bleeding into this bucket right now. Like it was crazy. But but the frustration still shows. But you can see everything bubbling up to the surface. And then that one scene where he's like going into the water and you think, okay, well, was this it? And his daughter finds him in the hotel room. And so it's like, it's all of it. It feels very pressurized. And I think Paul did such a good job at like keeping that pressure during the whole thing because i honestly i was like i don't know what's about to happen a lot of most scenes i was just like is she gonna get hurt is she gonna get taken is he gonna die like i have i had no clue so even though it was slow um or it was a slow build i felt like there was so much tension because you don't really know like where he's at or what he's gonna do or what's gonna happen to frankie maybe that's just being a woman i'm like yeah i'm scared for your safety child <laughs> but um I think that he did such a good job at playing that restraint and playing those quieter moments. And um, also just having that juxtaposed to his loving relationship with his daughter. Like you don't really, like you were saying earlier, like you don't get to see a lot of men have like healthy relationships with their kids on screen. Like it's always like, if you're a single parent, it always is implied that you're a deadbeat dad or you're not present or whatever. And to have that completely be flipped on its head where it's like, no, like he is very present. He very, they have a wonderful relationship. He's just dealing with all this stuff and he's trying to hide it from her. Like that was just such a good way to like humanize it because you, it's, that's not always the case for every family. And I just loved that he was able to have so much emotional maturity to be able to like hang out with this child and form a real bond apparently that's what they said they formed real bond so he just did a great i wouldn't be surprised if he got some type of nomination for best actor for this because i thought he did a fantastic job and then that one scene when he's just like breaking down but you don't see his face i was like oh oscar oscar (laughs) throw all the oscars at him like that was so good so yeah i haven't i haven't seen like normal people like you said but i do think this is this probably is one of those breakout roles that we see mm-hmm. in ama- amazing artists and it's also interesting and I, and I hate i hate doing this but coming from like how americans and how theater is done here theater is kind of like done you gotta emote 20 times larger than you actually require to to mm-hmm. sell sell to sell to everybody he has a, a theater background in like london and like in dublin ireland like his mm-hmm. career has mostly been theater and so for him to shift to this this film landscape and being able to be sub subdued and not like overly loud and like 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 you said when he's cutting himself with the cast and he's just you just you just see the frustration on his on his face but it's not like an over exaggerated frustration it's like a subtle like frustration that's like like you see all the stuff with um his character like they're they're cracks but it's it's bubbling and it doesn't fully release like you kind of see when the two young the teenagers approach him and his daughter, it's like, yeah, we got next. And then her, t- they go, hey, how about you play doubles? And they ask if that's his sister. You kind of see for a split second that like that weird processing. Like, am I am I too old or am I am I too young? Like trying mm-hmm. to figure out a rational thought. And with a lot of American actors usually shifting from theater to 
TV or film, they're still trying to learn how to restrain themselves. Which I, I, and that, I think that's why when a lot of European actors come here and they have a theater background, they do so well because the way we both experience theater in both these countries, like, is totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. like, because you'll watch like all these English actors who do TV and films here, they'll still go to England and do and do like theater. They are like West End productions, and they mm-hmm. still carry that subtlety through those stage productions. Whereas if, when you watch the opposite here, like perfect example is Lin-Manuel Miranda. He can act in anything here, but he still has that theater mindset where like, it'll be the simplest thing, but he has to throw himself like 20 times because he's stuck in that mentality, which I, I love that, that dynamic right there on how we both view theater. Sorry for the sidebar, but. No, that's, that's, that's very true. Well, at least I think it's true. <laughs> I think that's very accurate. Like, I, uh, it's interesting because I think there are back in the day, like way, way back in the day, like maybe like in 30s, 40s, 50s, a lot of actors were, would start on stage yeah. and then they would transfer over to film. And, I, and maybe it was a little bit more seamless because there was an idea that if you did theater, you were like a real actor versus yeah. like people who did television or movies. And then over time, I think that's changed where it's like, you know, you can you can be good in film and also be good in theater, and that doesn't have anything to, to do with your acting ability. But I do think in um, the UK, especially, theater is really like most actors want if they want to start acting, they don't really film isn't really or in TV is not where they want to start at. Like they want to yeah. do theater first, like and so that's usually most of their trajectory. They go to drama school and then they go to to the theater, and they do very different kinds of plays and some of it isn't like on Broadway. Some of it is just, or on the West end, like it's it's smaller plays in their community and stuff. So they have, I guess a, a bigger or a better training ground in terms of like doing a variety of things. Not to say that people don't here don't, but I think that starting there is kind of their base. And so they're able to like learn maybe more. And most of them are going to drama school anyway. So they're having different, experiences versus here maybe maybe it's different and like you said it's very theater i used to be a theater kid like yes you do have to be a lot you have to do a lot you gotta pay to the back of the house like that's the rule um and transferring that over to film where you have to do very little because the camera's going to pick up on everything it is a different it's a different kind of shift a little different of a skill set and you do have to kind of learn that so I agree. I think, but he was just, he was fantastic. And also the Sophie, um, Frankie Corio, she was amazing. Like I believed everything that was happening. Like, I think she did a good job of like, because sometimes child actors can be a little, they can act older than their actual age in order to sell the fact that they're like, you know, performing with older actors and stuff and they're in a movie. And she didn't really do that. Like a lot of the times it was very much like, yeah, you can see that she has an emotional maturity, but she's also still a kid. And I really appreciated like those moments of her just being a kid. Cause I'm like, yeah, and now I fully believe that (laughs) you're 11 years old and you're figuring this stuff out for the first time. And I related to her so much. I was like, I know exactly what you're going through. (laughs) And and there's, and honestly, I have no problem with sometimes child actors somewhat trying to play older than they are because let's be honest as children we all did that we assumed like yeah we, we try we like 
we don't talk about a lot. We talk about it more as adults, like dealing stuff and holding stuff in. But a lot of times as kids, we would view, we would view stuff and then we might not, like you said before, we might observe and not 100% understand why, but we, we could pick it up and then we would just kind of like hold it in. And like a lot of times, sometimes you ask a kid, like, what's wrong? After something like really serious happened, they say, oh, I'm fine. Like mm-hmm. they would try and play, play up to being more mature than they actually are. So, yeah. yeah. Paul was talking about a scene, the scene when they're in the clay baths and um, he's apologizing for what happened the night previously. And she's just, she doesn't say anything. She just keeps rubbing the clay on him. He was saying that like the actress, Frankie, didn't like when things got too serious. So mm-hmm. she tried to like, and it wasn't even a thought that she had. I think that's one of the things about child actors is that it's all instinct. They're not, they don't have the habits to be like, okay, I'm going to do this for this purpose. Like it's very much like how I'm feeling in the moment. And so she didn't want things to get too serious or sad. So she was just like rubbing the little clay on him, trying to like divert from whatever emotion was happening. And that was somewhat what Sophie was trying to do in the, in the film as well. So it was like a merge between the actress and the character yeah but all of that came from instinct and i think that's really cool to learn or to even observe especially if you've been acting for a while Mm -hmm. when you act with someone who doesn't have like set patterns and stuff and they're just going based off of like how they're feeling um wrong or right and i think that's just i think that's really cool and maybe that helped the performance even more of like she's a professional because obviously she has to you know you have to go on you have to remember lines. You have to, you know, do all of that. You have to be in front of the camera. But there is a huge part of it that's just instinct yeah, and intuition. That, yes, that's a, like, and this is her first, like, role. Like, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a natural kid thing to, like, when things kind of get too serious, like, no matter the situation, like, they kind of, like, freeze or kind of, like, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to do this. And I, and I think at that moment, it was more so she was trying to, I think how I viewed those scenes where as dealing with young age, I might be wrong. I think I viewed that scene as she's trying to um figure out what to do. And in that moment, like the directors has the insight of nah keep keep it rolling. Because that's literally what the thought process of a child would be if if something serious like your your parents drunk and they lock you out the house and somebody else will let you in that process of, of a kid taking a long time to figure out how do I respond. Like an adult we know like oh just lie off the bat whereas a kid when you ask kids serious questions if you look at them like literally you can slowly see the wheels turning on how how do i react how do i respond so I, in my opinion i think that was great insight on the on the director because I, I do think like you said a lot of times child actors act just i'm gonna just do this but at that moment you could see the wheels turning on how she decided to react and i think instinctively charlotte like just let 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 the scene breathe or let it go mm. on go on mm-hmm. for more than it needs to go and I, and I do think that's another thing like some directors you know when dealing with these sub are just so by the book there are certain times the director just needs to take a moment and just let the scene go on i think and those are honestly some of the best scenes in almost every movie when yeah. the director just holds on those moments and just like lets it go like let's let let it play out and let's see how where the actors take it so mm-hmm. yeah that's so true. And I think that's a part of like good filmmaking anyways, is like you go in there with a plan, but then you're okay when to like have discovery, to have things unexpected happen. 
and to just let that happen because that's where you kind of that's where you usually find like the best interesting moments is when you didn't plan it and it just happened on its own like so I think that for the this being her first film I think it was so thoughtful mm-hmm. like it was just like a very thoughtful like cared for film like it seems very much like they had this like little family that they had and when they traveled to I think they went to Turkey to film this and it felt like a, like a little bubble of like creativity and like friendship and stuff and so it and so that's how it feels when you watch it it feels very much like you are like you're almost a part of whatever is happening like this little family you're you you're picking up on it you're caring about the characters you're nervous and scared for Callum like and you want Frankie to be okay or Sophie to be okay and it just it feels very much like it reaches out and it grabs you and it pulls you into this world. And I love when films do that. When I can't, when I'm not really paying attention to like what's happening with me anymore. And I can just be in this space and like escape. I think that's what movies are best for is just, yeah. and escape, even if it's like not the best or the happiest ending, it just felt so relatable. Like, cause even if you didn't, lose a parent or something like you know what those feelings are like if you've lost anyone or if you feel like you're gonna lose someone or you know it's not even like a maybe a physical loss but a loss of this person's role in your life like if your father isn't really there and you know I think that's what really got me was like you can as an adult you can understand how sorry you can understand how certain decisions led to a person doing something or not really being around anymore but it still hurts but it's also still nice like like you can still look back on the good memories and be like yeah those were really great times and all of it kind of mixes and mashes together in your brain and so I think that was really what was one of the interesting things was having the videotapes because that kind of helps hard things out a little bit like you can still have complicated relationships around it and i think older sophie does yeah but i also think like at least she knows that in that time period however tough things got for her father he did love her very much and wanted to be there for her even if things didn't work out that way so that was a very emotional thing and having and hearing the breakdown of it was just like (laughs) It was just very emotional. Yeah. I was an emotional little wreck. Yeah. I think I think the perfect summation of of the film and these experiences actually come from an um, interview uh Charlotte gave where she said um about this film and about everything. Like she said adults are locked in the roles that they perform perform for kids. And and I feel like that that's amazing because honestly becoming an adult is a lot of is if you think about it, become being an adult or acting as an adult is is literally acting like mm-hmm. like be myself i know me personally like do all the all the bs and all the growth that i'm still processing when i interact with like the kids at my church or any other all, all my god siblings or even some of my younger cousins i'm i'm portraying a perfected version of myself that I wish I kind of had around 
as an adult to guide me. So, and I feel like that's kind of what, you know, um, Callum is doing. He's playing a, pretending to be a perfected version of his self to perform for a daughter, perform for his daughter, but the cracks are still creeping through. Mm. So, but yeah. yeah. I really, I very much feel like as an adult now, like I don't, one of the biggest things I want to do is to not repeat patterns of my parents, but also not pretend like everything is cool. Like I don't, I'm trying to reject that spirit of like having everything together by a certain age, because that's what society or whatever tells us, or my parents were doing a different thing. Mm. my age or whatever like i don't i'm just trying to reject all of that and be like you know what i'm on my own path and no i'm not okay all the time and i am gonna go through stuff and i want the time to process and the time to heal and like i want that for myself because i don't if i have kids even though i doubt that's gonna happen (laughs) i don't want to pass that on to my kids or for them to see me in a role like Charlotte says like stuck in a role. Like I don't want them to see me like that either. Like I want it to be a much more fluid relationship where it's like my mom's awesome, but I know that my mom also goes through some stuff. Yeah. And maybe that's too much to put on kids. I'm I don't know. I don't know where the lines are drawn, but I just I think that it's important that your kids see you for you yeah. as well as their parent because I think that just helps them really. But and it helps you too. So I'm this was a very, this was a very like reflective mm-hmm. type of movie where I saw so much of my own life in it and mm-hmm. also lessons that I can learn from it. I think that yeah. was, yeah, this movie is awesome. Like it really is good. I, <laughs> I didn't get it before, but yeah, I get it now. So it's, it's, it's one of those movies where your initial look at it, you kind of go, why? Mm-hmm. And then when you sit and let the movie breathe and you process it, you, those, the sparks go, oh, I, I understand. And, you know, because I'm not going to lie, in, in in the midst of watching it, I was like, like, you know how you have that thing with like three hour movies? And I was like, and when I was watching this movie, this movie was like two and two, like an hour 30. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this movie is short. But watching it, I was like, this movie's taking forever. Mm-hmm. But it's not after you like sit down and process and start to actually reflect on the movie. You go, I, I get it. It makes sense. Mm. It clicks and it works. So. Yeah. Okay. Final feelings, final (laughs) judgment of the after sun. Um, yeah, I'll give it like a a four out of five. Like, like I said at the beginning, I, I do love this error of you know directors creatives whatever processing grief processing growth processing stuff with their parents in this way because it also gives those of like those of us who do not have these outlets to express themselves the same opportunity to process things like 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 we're watching it and like i said a while ago sitting down and thinking about the movie you begin to process your own experiences whether it's of course uh you have um moonlight whether it's waves whether it's after sun all like whether it's like belfast all these all these movies that you know 
deal with this subject matter is good on like a universal um, level. And I don't think it's just for us reflecting on the parents. I think it's also good for parents who watch these things and reflect upon their experiences dealing with their kids. Like they're probably wondering, did how was I portraying? How did my behavior affect how the relationship we have now processes? And you understand like, on both sides as a parent as an adult as, a, as an adult slash parent and as a kid like you're both dealing with like a lot of frustration like 11 years old the world is still new and still weird and you're in the midst of puberty everything's changing as an adult you're then like oh, I'm, a, I'm a parent but i'm still young and the world's also changing so there's a lot of combative things happening at that time of like mid i would i'm gonna say like 30s as midlife honestly let's be that's kind of mm. biological that's what it is nowadays and adolescence like you're both completely crashing because you're both you know dealing with a lot of stuff internally so but yeah yeah nine out of nine nine out of ten four out of five a amazingly beautiful movie i'm i'm massively impressed with charlotte this being mm. like her first motion like full-length film and you know going from like three shorts and you know kind of building upon her 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 movie tuesday that came out in 2015 kind of building upon those same thoughts and themes in a larger longer format so, yeah uh yeah i am giving this a five out of five ten out of ten definitely one of the best movies i've seen all year yeah i think that's what's been interesting this year is that i haven't really felt too moved by the things that i've been seeing honestly like even though they've been good some of them have been really good i haven't felt deeply moved and like affected yeah. by most of what i've seen this year and this has definitely changed i think it'll change a little bit more now that we're getting a lot more content coming out um yeah in the last two months of this year but this was definitely like a deeply affecting movie for me a very personal movie for me to watch it hit me in the way like Coda hit me and Little Women. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, this is cute, and then 20 minutes and I'm crying. Like, like <laughs> that's what like, that's, that's that's what this movie did to me. Like wiping her, like, what is this water? Like, what is Wait. what is going on? Yeah, I'm crying. Yeah, so I think Paul did such a fabulous job. Yeah. I think Frankie did an amazing job. Charlotte Wells can't wait to see what she does next because this was very good. Like mm. for this to be your first movie, like. She really killed it. And then to have Barry Jenkins and stuff like be the produ producer on it and have that backing, I feel like, yeah, she's gonna she's gonna kill it. So if you can see After Sun, go see it because this it is definitely worth your time. Like it's a creeper, like it's slow in some points, and you're gonna be like, ah, I don't know. They're not really doing much, and then it's gonna hit you. Like, wait for it to hit you. It's definitely gonna be worth your time. So yeah, this is and this is this is one of those movies where it crosses like generational slash racial barriers because yeah, like, yes, this is one of those movies where the parent could be black, white, you know, Spanish, could be European, could be American, could be Jamaican, could be any kind of nationality, ethnic group, race, and those same experiences, those same feelings will always be at play. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, moving on from that, of course, it's time for the news. Kind of, kind of, I think, been like a slow news weekend slash week. Um, 
of course, you know, the big box office, you know, draw that we were like everybody's picking was, of course, Black Panther 2. Like I said um, before, this movie kind of does, like I said in talking about um, After Sun, Black Panther 2 also deals with the issues of, you know, grief and processing all that. Um, but uh, it also had an amazing debut weekend. It brought in about $330 million worldwide opening weekend, which is amazing. Um, just doing about $20 million less than Black Adam, um, which was going to be obvious. I was saying this from before. It was like Black Adam, of course, was going to be the number one movie in the world until Black Panther hits. And then Black Panther and does <laughs> Black Adam's gross in about three weeks. Well, the same gross, the same worldwide gross took Black Adam to make it three weeks. Wakanda Forever makes like one weekend, which is amazing for a movie. Um, so yeah, it's probably gonna it probably and also debuted I think for the biggest November release in film history, which mm. is which is amazing. I think also the same thing happened with Black Panther one. I f- I forget when it released, but it was the biggest debut in Hollywood history it was for February. That. February, yeah, I think it was the biggest box office debut for a movie out that month. So once again, like Black Panther, it like is hitting those major cinematic milestones with with the numbers it draws in. So, can I ask you take this next article? I mean, this next news story because I have not seen the movie yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, so uh, produce Nate Moore, one of the producers of Wakanda Forever, you know, sat down. Um, I think with Collider. They had an interview with them, you know, talking about, you know, the loss of Chadwick, you know, Ryan Cougar and those experiences, you know, uh, creating the movie. Um, I didn't watch the movie myself, so I'll probably give a brief synopsis of the movie. I don't want to, I'm not a spoiler person. I know everybody in that time. I will not, I will not, but he just talks about the difficulty it took making the film, which of course was pretty obvious dealing with not just the loss of your lead actor, but a person that was so loved by cast crew friends of the director you know everybody like bought it like you could tell uh chadwick had that natural you know um charisma mm-hmm. you know um mm-hmm. in talking in that pro post watching we were talking with my friend i was talking about marvel's being kind of in a weird place because it was obvious post you know captain america iron man those movies with robert on here chris evans leaving it was clear that Marvel was kind of looking at Chadwick Boseman being that linchpin correct actor based on all those natural charisma, charismatic things that even though he had a shorter film career, his charisma and stuff was on par with Chris and Robert Downey Jr. that drew people in. And that's something you want to be a linchpin for your universe. And post his loss, you see Marvel's trying to struggle with who which character carries that torch for the cinematic universe. Um, but they talk about, you know, um, you know, the next step, Black Panther 3, you know, they talk about stuff as far as um, the new Iron, new Captain America movie, which is going to be called um, Captain America New World Order. I don't know if that'll be the title continuing, especially with how that title is kind of too on the nose with all the social, political stuff going on, but it makes sense because Captain America is kind of more of a, a spy thriller in the kind of superhero right. landscape. But also those kind of those kind of Nazi esque 
connotations with that that word has now so we'll see how that can is but it's it's a good interview anybody wants to hear more about it and talk about he talks talk about the lead the scenes and extended cuts it's on available on, on collider.com uh, so yeah Okay, um, in other news, Kevin Conroy, longtime voice of Batman, passed away at 66. Um, it's interesting because every time Batman comes up, like, this is the animated version of it, right? Yes. Yeah, everyone talks about this Batman as being, like, one of their favorites. Yeah. So I know that that means that this loss is, like, a heavy loss for the Batman or just anyone who cares about DC, that community. Because um, I know, and I haven't even, I don't think I've watched like an animated DC series since like Spider-Man. And that was like so many years ago. So, um, but I know how much his Batman has meant to the community of Batman lovers. And he's no longer with us. And that's very sad. It's because I know that that probably sticks more with people than the interchangeability of the Batmans that we have in live action. Yeah. So that's very sad. Yeah. And like one of the things about it being like his portrayal of Batman, like let's be honest, it, it went from like the initial run was from 92 to 96, but then it continued for almost 60 different things mm-hmm. like video games, like a lot of like, ex- like DVD projects, you know, animated film, animated film releases. But like for a generation of people where you've seen live action versions of Batman come and go and they kind of missed the mark of playing the duality of Bruce Wayne and Batman, like Kevin Conroy is like, like you ask a James Bond fan, like who their favorite James Bond is, there's going to be like, you know, you ask one person, oh, they're going to say, oh, Connery, Brosman. Dalton, you, you, there's a lot of things, but if you ask any fan, like any DC fan, any any Batman fan, who is their Batman, they would always say Kevin Kevin Conroy, and that just goes like we don't think you know, and a thing with the industry, like as a fan looking in, people don't really think of voice actors in that manner, but once you start thinking about all the voices of your favorite characters growing up. Like those good people, like thinking like you, like not just saying you have Tara Strong, you have Phil Lamar. There are all these wonderful talented voice actors that we kind of forget that we've grown up listening to that have such a monumental impact on our lives that just because you don't see their talents play out on screen and stage, but they had such a monumental impact. And it's sad because apparently he had like a a short like battle with cancer and he was just sixty six years old. Mm. So it's like you, it's it's so it's. It's that's life, but I, his impact for a generation always goes beyond. And even other directors will say his version of Batman is usually what they try to emulate when they're right. Because he had a way of like portraying Bruce Wayne and Batman as two separate people in the way he used delivered his voice and stuff like that. So, but yeah, he'll be like sorely, sorely missed. So. Yeah. Um, the last news story is. Um, Jennifer Aniston's father, John Aniston, um, has passed, also passed away at the age of 89. He was a star on Dates of Our Lives. Um, Jennifer gave a really sweet um, send off to him. They had a very complicated relationship from what I understand, but um, 
don't think they say how he, how he passed, but he has since passed since uh, I think it was on November fourteenth. Um, I also wanted to bring up Jennifer Aniston because I think she she uh, she gave an interview about um, kind of addressing a rumor that had been going on from as long as I can remember when I started looking at like celebrities and stuff about the reason why her and Brad Pitt ended their relationship. And she was just saying like, people had made assumptions that Brad had left her because she wouldn't give him kids or something of that sort. And she was saying like, she tried to have children for so long and that was a very painful experience for her and to have it play out in the media the way it did was very was also very hurtful and I think we've learned so many lessons from that time those early 2000s in terms of how we view celebrity and unfortunately I think they had to be like the guinea pigs for that Jennifer Aniston Angelina Jolie Brad Pitt all of them like it's very interesting how we understand or just talk about women in those public roles now of like, you don't assume things about <laughs> their private lives, especially when it comes to something as serious as childbearing, because you really don't know. And that just goes for everything. Like you just have no idea what people are going through behind the scenes. So um, I like that she at least said something about that, but also just, it was interesting for me to see because I was very aware of all of that stuff when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So to see how things have changed and they haven't changed a whole bunch. I mean, there still is a lot of misogyny and all that other stuff when it comes to reporting on celebrities, especially women um, and intrusiveness. That's just ridiculous. But I do think we have shifted to at least a semi healthier place where we can talk about people and not be so incredibly um, mean spirited or judgmental or just downright sexist. Like, as a community of people. So I I hope she healed I hope she's healed from that. But also um it just came simultaneously in the same moment of her father passing. And I thought, prayers out to Jen. Like I hope she's yeah. doing well. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot to deal with. Um Yeah. And you 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 spoke about, you know, Jen, you know, kind of being that guinea pig and dealing with, you know, those issues of I guess celebrity in the modern age and stuff like that and having to wrestle with those issues of, you know, her portrayal and how she depicts her sexuality. Um, another amazing talent who kind of deals with it as a black woman on a very frequent place, Chloe Bailey, you know, mm. it's just it's just it's announced that she's getting her first film role in the Wall Street drama called Midas Touch, where she's playing Lauren Simmons first black um second black woman to hold the title of equity trader on wall street and it's and it's i'm proud i'm happy for her you know even though she's older, old, even though she's the older one of the two her sister's making the breakout role of playing you know uh um playing little mermaid mm. but for her being like really like i guess i don't know i feel kind of weird as black people like men or women kind of how we play how we demean how other people are comfortable with portraying their 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 comfortability with their body and their sexual sexuality like we'll say oh this person doesn't have natural sex appeal because they're doing the most or blah blah mm. some people are more are just happier and fine like just because they don't portray the subdued subdued version or th- whatever version of sexuality you think they should portray doesn't mean you should demean them like people express how comfortable they are however they choose to express it because i know if chloe billy decided not to do anything 
y'all would call her like lame and stuff like that. But props there, both of them, you know, amazing mm-hmm. artists, and they're stepping into the the big screen beyond. Growing, you can't wait to see what both of them do as their careers on both the music and the the TV film side progress. Yeah. That's a good point, though, with Chloe Bailey. And I feel like that's a very Black community type of situation. Um, y'all need to leave her alone. <laughs> you wish that you had the talent that you had. Don't be mad. Yeah. That's all I have to say. <laughs> okay, moving on to our weekly reviews. Dale, what you watch? Um, of course, I did watch, you know, Black Panther 2, um, Wakanda Forever. Um... Yeah, I I do think it's an amazing movie. My first thing I don't I don't don't take this as a way of you know to me the movie I did I thought the first one was like probably the one of the best movies I've ever seen made, and that's always going to be a thing comparing the the, the first movie to the sequel the sequel and trilogy. There's always going to be some kind of point of diminishing returns. It's it's clear in watching the movie um, that um, a in a lot of these scenes the actors, especially you know. He gave Ryan Cooler gave every actor a chance to process their own individual grief of Chadwick. There are scenes written with that with that in mind, where everybody gets a chance to process and reconcile and deal with their grief of losing somebody who they've all come out and said less like a brother, like a like a son, you know, like a friend. Um, and it's clear how much his loss altered the course of this film there are a lot of plot fizz i do think that would have stayed the same but it's clear how much um the loss of him affected how the story beats actually flow um credit to ryan kukulu for being able to you know course correct and being able to adjust in such a magnificent way um yeah and I, i find it interesting like the two extremes of like the most recent Marvel movie was Throw Love and Thunder. So the way both these movies, you know, played out with directors going deeper into stuff like uh Tagawatiti, he went a hundred percent into the comedy range and people were not ready for him. I think the issue with him was that American audience saw like, oh, Thor Love and Th- Thor, I know, oh they love my comedic style. Let me go one hundred percent and it got the opposite direction you also have him disrespecting fx workers and then you have the amazing work of you know um of course of brian kugler processing with grief and and loss in the first black panther as well because if you remember in in Mm -hmm. the war the father just dies so it's kind of still piggybacking off of that and then then taking a step further and dealing with the things while uh, the loss of chadwick and how much both directors kind of doubled, like, like went 100% in those themes from their first movies. But it's really interesting how it worked for one and not worked for the other. Because it takes, like, a depth touch to go in 100% to those kind of st- things. Because it was not Ryan Cooper's first time dealing with the themes of grief and loss. Of course, a fruit Velvet Station did the same. So these two directors are really good at writing. Like, Ryan Cooper does really human like those kind of things and Taga takes it a certain way dealing with those same issues more so like um Charlie does how adults play roles but he plays it more the comedic side of it 
and how different the reactions once all these directors went fully into their wheelhouse and how it was perceived. Um, not just that, I got to see um early screening of the Fablemans, which I think we're gonna two of us are gonna go through in depth when we come back from Thanksgiving break. Um, wonderful mm-hmm. movie. Um, it's a semi biographical pick based on Steven Spielberg, and in watching the movie. I do feel like the issues of, I'm not going to go full detail, but the issues of um, um, anti-Semitism and stuff like that that we're dealing with right now society as a, as a society, um, it's very timely that this movie comes out. I will say I do see a lot of, you know, in this story, I do see a lot of, it's funny, these two movies deal with the relationship with kids and their relationship with their parents to a degree. I do see a lot of my relationship with my parents and how I kind of have some traits of one change to the other and how I interact with both of them in um, this in Fablements as well. So yeah, it's an amazingly beautiful movie. Um, when we could, we'll talk, I'll go further with my review once we get back from things in the break. Yeah. Oh, that's coming up very soon. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that scared me about, or not scared me, but made me worry a little bit about the Fablemans is that I have, I watched the Spielberg documentary and I know that this is, I mean, they're going to say it's semi-autobiographical. It, I'm sure that a lot of his life is in, in this yeah. movie. So I'm like, well, I've seen you talk about it and I've seen, I've already kind of, I don't think, I think he's going to present it in a way that's, very different obviously from the documentary side of it but yeah maybe that's just a good base of like okay well i know kind of what's gonna happen (laughs) um but everyone has been raving about the fableman so i actually am very excited to watch it i I think one thing i got from it was was it's funny like when i was oakwood one of my friends paul you know he would always on the podcast before he would like we both like love rents and mm-hmm. he would he would always say, "You're like Mark," because I I'm a very I I will watch people. I don't engage. Oh, okay. I watch, and I got that same feeling watching this movie, watching how um Sammy interacts with people. Like, yeah, I I like after a while thinking about, it, I was like, yeah, it it makes sense why how my friend would would always call me Mark because I I do have. I'll just rather sit and not interact and watch. So I, that, I think I, this movie, like, I really resonated with it a lot. You know, it's a beautiful movie. I think everybody will enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I watched The Crown Season 5. We can get more into this because it's already been out. <laughs> we can't really talk about the other things because people haven't really seen them yet or they just saw it. Yeah. So, but The Crown Season 5. Oh, uh, hmm. I have feelings about this season. Okay, well, I will say that this has such this has so much controversy around it because they're talking about a very difficult time for the royal family, and people have been ta- discussing like, oh, we have to make sure people know it's a fiction, and Judy Dench somehow into the chat on behalf of the royal family. It's just there's a lot of stuff around it but when you actually watch the series um there are other issues that feel more important to talk about than how the royal family is going to feel about it like we i know i don't care but um i think that one Imal- Imalia, imalda is it imalda, 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 imalda Stanton? Stanton. yeah Stanton. 
she's fantastic um she is incredible like literally a almost perfect version of the queen at that time like that was an amazing performance i also think that dominic west i think that's his name who plays prince charles did an, an amazing job as well killed that role i'm expecting things for them Elizabeth Becky as Diana. Okay, this is, <laughs> this might be, I'm really interested to see how other people feel about this season because for me, that was one of the weaker points of, of this, which is very strange because Elizabeth Becky is an incredible actress and she really eats every role that she takes. And I honestly don't think it's her fault. I really think it comes down to the writing of it. Um, I, d I feel like one of the issues with The Crown is that it, it's not as interesting as it was in its first and second seasons. Because again, and I said this before when we've talked about the show, we didn't know what was going on back in the 50s. You know, so there was more, it was a lot more room to explore things there. When you get to the 80s and the 90s where there's so much footage and there's so much stuff that you, in interviews and articles about these people, it's harder to make a narrative around it because it's like, well, the public already knows so much about it. So like, what are you going to introduce that's new that people don't know? And they kind of did a little bit of it with how Charles really wants to modernize the royal family, which is something that we knew, but they kind of go more in depth of it. And I'm saying we, I'm talking about people who actually care about this stuff and like yeah. paid attention. But um, what's, the, what I think they keep running into as a problem is that the royal family doesn't really change. No. So you're having, you're having these characters learn the same lessons over and over, but there isn't any progress being made on it. So it's very boring because it's like, well, we've already heard them have these same discussions in season four and in season three. So why are we still talking about it in season five? Well, they haven't learned the lessons. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, okay, so it feels like you're just retreading the same kind of ground and that gets very exhausting after a while. Another issue I think that they had was how to depict Diana. It, it's, and I haven't seen anyone really portray her well because, mm -hmm. she, because she is such a complicated person. I don't think everyone has ever really gotten like the total foothold into playing her. I think Kristen did a good job in terms, because it wasn't, you weren't supposed to look at it as like a real story. It was supposed to be a fantasy. Like that's what they preference the movie with Spencer. And it was kind of hard for me as well, because as a huge Kristen Stewart fan, I couldn't really see her as Diana. And not that she didn't do a great job, but just, I just knew it was like Kristen Stewart playing Diana. Yeah. So I couldn't really separate those two things out. I think Emma Corrin is maybe the only person who got it somewhat right. And that's early Diana when she's still a young person. And she's just yeah. entering the royal family. I think she was the only one who really got got it somewhat correct in terms of like her personality at that time. This Diana, which is towards the end of her life, is very, very complicated. Like she's a woman who is very good at her job. She has this appearance of confidence and strength, but she is a mess in her personal life, like an absolute mess. Like she does the most pettiest, shadiest things to people. And she only, she's so obsessed with like finding love and finding the right man and whatever. But she's still a great mother and she's still a great professional in like being an ambassador for Britain, being a person who shares, who gives love and brings people together. What I think that they 
didn't do right is that they focused way too much on her messiness and not on her actually doing her job well. And they kind of did that in season four with Diana as she gets older. The benefit of it is that they at least showed her doing her job. This season, you don't really get to see her do anything. She just walks around her apartment and like complains about how tough her life is, how the royal family doesn't care about her, how her marriage is falling apart. And I just don't like that portrayal of her. I feel like if you're going to portray Diana, you need to do all of it. Yeah. You can't just section off pieces because the way that she came off to me was a person who was very annoying and like very complaining and naggy and just emotional to the point of like beyond reason. And I think that there is a case that maybe Diana was like that, but I just feel like you can show that fine, but like, why aren't we seeing her like interacting with kids? Why aren't we seeing her on the landmines campaign? Like these are huge moments that people remember from Diana's life. Like if you pay attention to her life at all, you know, the work that she did, especially towards after her divorce and everything that happened afterwards leading up to her death, she was doing a lot of really great things, especially with AIDS and the landmine stuff. So I'm like, why haven't we seen any of that? That's so weird that you would not include that as a part of her story. They weren't, that they didn't add in the most important parts to me of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know why. I guess that's my question. It's like, why not include it? Because to me, that would have made her so much more of a humanist, like a human portrayal, a humanistic portrayal of her. Um, to not just show her in the view of what I think the royal family sees her as was like the wife from hell. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they played into that a lot. And I think that's Peter Morgan who creates the show's issue is that he very much takes the side of the royal family. So they get portrayed very well, even though they were doing some things that were very questionable and messy in my opinion, especially Charles. Like the way that they portrayed Charles and Camille's relationship is very loving and sweet, which I guess it was, but like, they were also cheating on their spouses. Like, are we not, are we going to ignore that portion and then just act like Diana's just rolling around in tears as a mess for no reason? Like, I don't, I don't like how they, it was almost a demonization of Diana, which I hate, which I really hate. And I don't think they did a good job in portraying her at all. And then you have Elizabeth DeBecky. It's like, well, what is she going to do now? She's a really good actress, but it's like, you can only do so much within the confines of the script. Like you can't move outside of that. So I think they waste, they wasted their potential with using her as an actress, but also just not fleshing out Diana's story at all. Like at all to me, I feel like they missed so much stuff. And that was one of the weaker points of the season, which is sad. Um, Also, I think the issue of, lack of diversity like they have an episode where they're focusing on Dodie Fayette who is Diana's boyfriend Mm -hmm. at the end of the film I mean at the end of her life that's the guy she's with and I'm like why are we focusing on Dodie Fayette he's not going to show up until the last episode really if we're or even in season six yeah where is where he'll be more more important so why are we focusing on him in his life and i was like oh there are no other pers- people of color in this show that's the reason why they did a whole episode based on his life like 
that's also a problem. Like, I know that there were people of color, Black people who interacted with the royal family. You could have put that in there, but I feel like they were like, oh, there, there aren't, there, it's too white. So let's just have a whole episode about people of color. And I, I'm becoming very disenchanted with the crown. Like, I just don't, I'm not finding the net benefit in watching it anymore. I mean, I'm going to watch season six because I want to see how it ends, but I don't, I didn't, I, I didn't love this season. This is, this season is not one that I'm going to go back to because I just feel like there are so many missteps in terms of like storytelling. And I don't know why, because you've done such a great job of it throughout the seasons. And I just, I mm, wasn't I, loving it. <laughs> I personally think this is a combination of three things. Mm. One with the season, of course, five and six, you're getting closer to the modern version of the crown where a lot of their stuff is more public. Mm-hmm. All those issues are more public. That's kind of also why he said, I think, why season six would be the last one, because at that point, post-Diana's death to now, it gets really messy. You have the sons, I think one of them dressed up like a Nazi uniform as yeah. like a joke or whatever mm-hmm. but it gets into real messy areas um two i think the reason why diana's portrayal is done that way is kind of lazily done in a way because he's assuming that everybody in the 90s or anybody watching is fully aware of the things that happened with diana what she did and Yes and no, Diane is due to the crown and due to the issues of the royal family dealing with Harry and Meghan that Diana has been re, like in the last 10 or 5 or so years, she's been put back into the limelight as far as who she is and whatever the things she did. And so I think Peter was going on, oh, everybody knows about Diana now. I can, I can, what I was doing in the first couple seasons with, you know, theorizing on how Prince Philip was acting or Charles was acting. I could just focus on Diana being a mess. And the last part I want to say is um, he's also married to royal family. Like his daughter is like a, the princess of the Czech Republic. And so, oh. yeah, his her, her father is a nobleman called Prince Carl von Skarsenberg. So he is kind of royal adjacent himself. So he's probably had plenty of interactions with the, the royal family and state dinners. And beyond that, after his work on the Queen, he was given commander of the royal empire. So there's a lot of probably personal stuff at play, which probably is true because a lot of the talking points and stuff about how they talk about Diana being messy and stuff was stuff that was in that era were constantly repeated by the firm Mm -hmm. over and over and being like oh everybody think Diana's messy and stuff like that so it feels like a regurgitation of those viewpoints um to your to what you said about Elizabeth Dobecki and the issues of portrayal with Diana um for me the portrayal of Diana's is is always weird. I do tend to think that um, in the most recent portrayals of Diana between the crown and, of course, Kirsten Stewart, I do think, like you said, they did a better job than Elizabeth Dobecki. I think Elizabeth Dobecki of Diana is probably trying to be somebody who's much older than she is, which 
at the time, yes, Diana is trying to be someone older than she is. But you have to remember, she was only 30 when they started their divorce. She mm. was really young, like thrust from like, they were only together, really married for 15 years. So you got to go from being like just breaking your adolescence and being like a teenager, being thrust to the line, like not having a chance to grow privately. You're still growing and you're wrestling with a lot of stuff. I do think, um, I, I do think, um, Elizabeth Do- Dobecki, um, uh, not Elizabeth Dobecki, I do think, um, oh, uh, dang, oh, uh, Kirsten Stewart did an amazing job in wrestling with that insecurity that simmers beneath the surface. I do think Elizabeth Dobecki, to me, portrayed her as kind of more slyish and conniving, especially in the scene where she's giving that interview with Martin Boucher, like, mm-hmm. which is weird because we can actually watch the video of Diana and how she's mm-hmm. acting. You can see, like, with her eyes, there's a lot of sadness and stuff that she's holding back and the way she emotes and kind of tilts her head. And with Elizabeth Dobecki, it kind of comes more of kind of like scheming in a way. Mm. Um, and once again, that to me feels like a, 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 a edict <laughs> being sent to him from the firm as is like, look, we know what you're doing now. It's getting closer to, you know, Diana, you know, and they also stopped production of the show due to, um, Prince Philip's passing, and I think they also kind of, they're all, I don't know if they started back shooting off season six. You know, there are probably a lot of edicts that happen after Prince Philip's, you know, funeral death, and then them also finding out, oh, Diana's getting a movie starring Chris Stewart, and then you have the Queen dying, which probably came from high above, saying, hey, we know you're doing this. You need to kind of not portray the royal family in a certain manner, because mm. they're de- they're dealing with stuff. Like, I think there was a rumor that I think somebody said they were friends with like Prince Harry or went to a dinner Prince Harry was there, and they asked him about if he watched The Crown, and like I think it was like uh um uh dang what Matt Smith, like Matt Smith said he went out with uh he went out Harry was there he, was, he called him Grandpa. Mm. So I think I think I think the royals are aware and that whole are aware of how their portrayal and stuff on the show, so I do think that probably played a factor in kind of why this season plays out the way it does. I think they got a lot of backlash from them considering how they portrayed Prince Charles as whiny and needy with, with Josh O'Connor's portrayal. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I mean, the thing was is that this season was already done before yeah. the Queen died. But, um, but... but, but uh, Philip had was died during this during the shooting of the season though so so but i don't know i feel like if you're too close to it then don't tell the story (laughs) like if you feel like too strongly about it then and i mean i guess that was the intention of the show always it wasn't really focusing on like the younger members initially it was supposed to focus on the queen and her prime ministers like that's what the show was really supposed to be about and on that score, they did a good job. Like, I mean, yeah. the, the Queen portrayal was great. The Prime Minister at the time, which is John Major, great. He did a great job, whoever that actor was. Like, that was a great interaction. You can see what he was doing within the royal family. But I think in terms of, like, if... I guess my issue is, like, if you're gonna introduce or really expound upon certain characters like Diana, like Charles, like, I just feel like you need to give them a more well-rounded view and i think their point of view is that they have that's the thing like Mm -hmm. in their minds they're like yeah we've humanized these people 
But for me, I'm like, no, not really. You're really just kind of saying what we already know and then giving us a little bit more of like mystery in terms of like, oh, what can, what conversations could this have happened that led to this event? Not really like, who are these people and how are they changing over time? I feel like one of the scenes that are really indicative is like of that is that at the end of their divorce, Charles and Diana were pretty cool with each other. Like there wasn't a lot of animosity or anything left. Like they were, they were chill. Um, And that last meeting that they have where they're arguing and stuff. And I'm like, well, this didn't even happen. Like the last time that they met, according to text and history of what we know is that they cried together and was like, you know, we tried to have a marriage and it didn't work. And that's sad. And that's how it left off. Not a whole bunch of bickering and all this other mess just to like inform drama or to bring up on drama. Yeah. I didn't, I just feel like don't, sometimes the real stuff is actually better than whatever you're trying to do to incite drama. Like you can just like, to me, that's so humanizing of these two people who never had a chance of really having a great marriage coming together and being like, you know what? We did try to, we tried, we at least gave an effort of trying to be together. Mm-hmm. To me, that mean, that makes both of them look better in my eyes, instead of them yelling back and forth about all the things that didn't happen or whatever. And I'm just like, again, that comes down to writing, that comes down to storytelling. You can argue about Diana being sneaky and all this other stuff, which I think she was. I think she definitely and they both, had. They both were. So. And they both were. And that's, yeah. enough, that's a great point. They both were by the way, if they forgot, like Charles was just as messy as Diana was, um, but he had the protection of the royal family where she didn't, she was isolated. So she had to do things that were a little crazy to get people's attention. And I just wish that they let in with that. Like if you're gonna have an entry point into Diana, it needs to come from a place of like, this is a person who doesn't have that many options. So like, what do you do when you feel isolated and cornered? You act out and do some crazy stuff. So it's like, why didn't we lead in with that instead of the royal family's portrayal of her just being insane? I just don't, I don't like that. And I think that they could have done a better job and Peter should have known better as well. Like if you're gonna tell these stories, you need to do it all the way. You have 10 episodes to really flesh these people out. Like you don't yeah. really have an excuse. And so the, th- and the thing, the thing is also, you have to understand what the, what the royal family is. Uh, as a whole because if you know diana even before marriage was technically a member of the royal family already um she was in the aristocracy in the ar- not really yeah. the same thing, but she was, she was roundabouts roundabouts there a yeah. lot of these a lot of these kids are groomed from jump especially the older the older girls for the most part are groomed in a way that you are potentially going to be marrying the future king of England, so you're going to be taught this way. Remember, uh, Diana wasn't the oldest sibling; she was like one of the youngest siblings. Mm-hmm. So she was not prepared to go from like she was like living in an apartment with her friends in England mm-hmm. and then living a regular life as a normal person, and then all of a sudden transitioning like, oh, you're now going to be the princess. And mm-hmm. like you got to understand, she was that was probably not the plan anybody had for her as far as marrying the future king they're probably thinking it's gonna be your older sister mm-hmm. somebody else's or it's not gonna be you go live your life and then suddenly have to be thrust in, into that world when you're unprepared and having to learn all those idiosyncrasies and things that your siblings probably got but you didn't because they didn't see 
the odds are of the younger sibling somehow getting that role. So a lot of a lot of those things need to be examined and explained when it comes to talking about Diana and and her behavior mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that as well. So yeah, well, I was disappointed, <laughs> but whatever, it's over. So uh, yeah, we're gonna have to wait like I guess what twenty years to get the mod like what we have now i guess for the royal family Ooh, is like well, harry and megan's drama you can so. wait we only have to wait like two months for harry's book to come out i cannot this is wait also to read true. That. this is also true i'm going to read the mess out of that book i can't wait to see what he says like i'm i am here for all the drama anyway that's just me being a messy queen but <laughs> that's it from us uh we hope that you're taking care of yourselves and you're having a good week make sure to check out all of our social media support us if you can and we will see you guys in the next episode goodbye au revoir